Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, October 19th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Back from Los Angeles, I see. How was the flying? It was really normal, with the exception of the fact that you have to keep a mask on. And after eight hours, you want to rip your face off. I have no idea how service professionals do it. But... Beyond that, it was a really normal experience. No oh, good. Okay. And uh, senior writer Christine Rosen, who uh, did not take a plane, but uh, but did teach a black, did teach Aikido this weekend. Is that correct? Uh, yes, actually. <laughs> yes, yes. Our own black belt right here, Christine <laughs> Rosen. Um, so we have 15 days to go until election day. Uh, 30 million people have already voted. We don't know whether this means that we're going to have record turnout. Uh, this is the weird thing about early voting. And everybody needs to be prepared for this or to think this through, um, which is that in 2016 in Florida, there was a lot of early voting. And all the early voting, because it was done by party, it was very clear that the Democrats had cleaned up in early voting, which apparently is sort of new because historically Republicans have done better in absentee and early voting because they travel more. So when, when absentee voting in particular, or there are more more Republicans in the military, for example. So it was classically a more, uh, something that favored the right, but that in uh, the Florida numbers were favoring the left. And so people started getting bizarrely confident, not thinking that, you know, if you cast a vote early, that's good, but it's not like it counts more than a vote that's cast on election day. And then it turned out that the Republicans in Florida turned out in force on election day. And Trump of course won Florida. And that was the indication, the earliest indication that he was going to, he was going to seize the day and, and, and win the election. Um, so we have this mammoth early voting, and so and it, it seems to be close to two to one Democratic in some places, but that doesn't mean that Republicans aren't aren't going to vote on election day. Uh, but on the other hand, you know it's better to bank a vote than not because at least people are voting. But it's a little like when uh, uh, all these businesses started going crazy offering sales on black friday uh you know right after thanksgiving online uh, so that they could get people to buy from them because it was like well we need to register the sale but of course then that meant that their sales you know like two or three days before christmas were bad or down or something like that you know so it's like it's better to bank the sale than not to bank the sale because maybe someone wouldn't buy from you but with a vote, the vote that's cast early counts no more than the vote that's cast on, on election day. It's just that the kinds of things that could keep people from voting on election day won't necessarily keep them from voting on election day, like, I guess, the pandemic, number one, but also if it's raining, if the lines are too long, if you know they can't get off from work, whatever, whatever it is that might keep people from going, yeah, I don't need to do this. Um, so... But what's interesting to me is that uh, far from feeling confident, my sense, and we've talked about this last week, but I think it's my sense is that uh, liberals and Democrats and people who are are eager for a Biden victory are treating all this news and everything that's going on, including the polls, as uh, they're Charlie Brown and this is all Lucy and the football and the football is they are being lulled into a false sense of security and they're going to come up and even though they know that it's going to happen, they're going to try to kick the football and then Trump is Lucy and pull the football away, fall on his back, you know, Charlie Brown's dead on his back and Lucy laughs again. Uh, it is a fascinating thing because no one has led by this much in the polls since Clinton in 96. Uh, There hasn't been a lead like this. Biden still leads in every single battleground state in the, you know, in poll averages. And yet I'm telling you, the panic is very serious. Christine, are you hearing it from your, oh, Abe, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, but, you know, but none of that has stopped them from being completely mystified and baffled still as to who 
and how anyone would vote for Trump. But that's but, part of it, right? right that's right. part because they don't understand right. America. Right. And so for all they know, these insane people who don't live in the 10 largest cities in the country or around them are just, you know, going to screw everything up again in the worst right. possible way. Well, it's also the case that I don't think most most Americans aren't following the political news of the moment. Um, and Noah, this is a point you've made frequently on the podcast. I think it's it's even more true in this election uh, than not. The political class is so obsessed with Trump just as a personality, setting aside politics, that the average American couldn't possibly keep up or care with that amount of information about him, the detail. I will say, though, John, I have noticed more panic on uh, – there is a sort of low-level panic on the right as well about – the, the very real possibility that Trump will not win re-election, rumors of, you know, White House folks kind of quietly sending out their resumes. And uh, John, this over the weekend, we had John Cornyn of Texas um, embrace the idea that he was in a dysfunctional marriage with Donald Trump and he thought he could change him. But, you know, like a woman who marries a man who can't be changed, <laughs> this isn't working out well for him. So the, the distancing that we we predicted a few weeks ago is is very clearly happening among conservatives as well. So can I can I tell you a story from my book from Hell of a Ride, which is the book I wrote about the the last, if this happens, the last first term loss, George H. W. Bush's loss in 1992. So there's an anecdote in the book where um, uh, Lisa Schifrin, who was working as a speechwriter for Dan Quayle, uh, Bush has a gives a good speech or something. There's a good night. Something happens. And she goes to Bill Crystal, who is uh, Quayle's chief of staff. And she's like, oh man, did you see that? That was great. Things are really great. I, I, you know, I think we can really turn this around. And Bill says, Lisa, work on your resume. <laughs> That's all he says. So, anyway. Yeah. I mean, uh, just to, not to be too uh, contentious here, but um, I don't see, a lot of panic on the right and the examples that you gave Christine suggest that there really is no panic on the right, because that's not panic, right? Preparing your resume and quietly putting out feelers isn't panic. Prudentially distancing yourself from a very unpopular figure at the top of the ticket isn't panic. It's rational. It's a, it's a rational, it's a series of stopgap measures that you're making based on an objective calculation of the circumstances around you and the data to which you're privy, which is not what we're seeing from the left. They're reacting and completely irrationally and irrespective of the data and the signals that they're getting around them. So, I mean, any, if there was any abject panic on the right, they would be beaten back into compliance because there is a real social stigma an enforced stigma and a taboo around evincing anything other than bravado. And okay. So this is a very, here's a very interesting point. So, so Trump's political brilliance. And I, I say that use the word advisedly in containing and controlling the Republican Party began at the tail end of 2016 when he came to understand that what he needed to do was ensure that Republicans did not split away from him and become a rump against him. First of all, there's a tradition of this happening with outsider candidates. Jimmy Carter had a terrible relationship with the Democratic Senate, and that was part of what handed him some... terrible defeats, particularly over the, um, the SALT treaty, SALT II treaty. And, uh, and so he was, he, somebody may have explained this to him or he remembered it or whatever, but mostly it was, if you start coming out at me, you know, I may really be in trouble. So he targeted Republican senators in particular who were critical of him, openly critical of him, Bob Corker and Jeff Flake in particular. And he encouraged primary challenges to them. He encouraged primary challenges to Republican House members who spoke out against him. And it worked. Like, he scared the bejesus out of them, and they all fell in line and stopped attacking him and criticizing him. And now there's been a little bit of this, particularly this call that Ben Sass was on, Senator Ben Sass, in which he said there's maybe a blue tsunami and, you know, Trump kisses the asses of dictators and various other things. And of course, Trump then went on Twitter and said, little Ben is stupid and, you know, he should have lost and now he'll lose and little Ben go away and all this. And uh, note, uh, Trump is not tweeting against Sarah Gideon, 
who is running against Susan Collins. He is not tweeting against um, Jamie Harrison, who is running against Lindsey Graham. He is not doing what he can to help the Senate can if if he were to be of help to the Senate candidates in states where there are loyal politicians who have been loyal to him who are in tough races. He is enforcing his personal discipline against the turncoat Republicans, the people who insult him personally. And um, I don't know what to make of that except to say that um, it, it's it's a sign that either he doesn't believe that he has any coattails or any possibility of coattails, that basically it's every man for himself, except to the extent that every man for himself means that it's okay to criticize him because they need to put distance between them in order to, you know, skate just like inch over the finish line. You're not allowed to do that. Do that and he'll and he'll kill you. But uh, he is doing absolutely nothing. He has taken over the party and he is doing nothing to help the party whatsoever. Uh, he's not raising money for anybody else. He has not uh, come up with political strategies to help anybody else. It's just an interesting uh, phenomenon. I think. Um, so I'm filibustering here. Somebody somebody say something that's not me. Well, I just want to say, regarding the Democratic panic, though, or the liberal panic, I mean, there have been these sudden news cycles that they didn't expect, that they didn't need, that I think in part have rocked them back on their heels. Um, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and then the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, and how well she has done um, and now the um, very probable, um, her, her very probably sailing through entirely. Um, I think these things they didn't expect at all. Um, and that that is in part what's given them uh, pause here. Right. Well, and then there's also, but, you know, okay. So if we go to the Hunter Biden story, right? So that was panic. So a story comes out that says uh, someone got Hunter Biden's uh, uh, email computer and there are all these emails and, you know, there's pictures of him, disgusting pictures of him. And he, you know, all of that. Um, And the instant response is shut it down, shut it down before anyone can see it. Don't let anybody read it, have social media block it. And then these stories, which aren't illegitimate, but these stories about how, you know, it's terrible. And the New York post reported the person who wrote the story didn't want their name on it because who knows where the things came from and yada, da, da, da. And, and the, rather than letting this play out, which is look, it's terrible. It's a story about Hunter Biden. It's not a story about Joe Biden. It's a story about, it's got nothing to do with Joe who has been a loving and concerned father toward a problem toward somebody with a problematic life, his own son, after particularly after the death of his of his other son. And yet they're like, oh my God, oh my God, we have to suppress this story in every way possible. That was a panic. But I don't think you can I don't think it's fair to say it's only about Hunter Biden, to be honest. And this is why their panic is going to is, has backfired against them. We've had more stories about the New York Post story than we've had stories that actually seek to confirm or or undermine the claims in that original New York Post, the, the handful of stories they, they put out there. And I do think it, it only implicates Biden in so much as it undermines his Im, the image he's crafted for himself as a candidate running now based on his experience as vice president and whether or not there was any sort of, you know, uh, backroom dealing that benefited his family financially, were there meetings that were set up that he agreed to, these sorts of things voters would like to know. Um, Again, I don't think there's anything, you certainly, from the evidence we have so far, there's no criminal element to any of this. But I do think that it is more than that. And the more they write about how the story was written or published, the less we hear about that and the more skepticism I think that creates in a public that just wants a a straight statement from either Joe Biden's campaign, which has not denied that these emails happened and that they're real. We've had now over the weekend um, evidence suggesting there's no, no evidence that this is a Russian disinformation campaign. These do seem to be real. So just what are the facts? If you're going to attack the New York Post story, fine, but then confirm or, or deny the story on your own with your own reporting. They're not doing that. They're not doing their job. That's their job if you're a journalist. 
Look, I agree, but I'm saying that the fact that they're not doing their job is an element of this liberal panic. Absolutely. That is to say, oh my God, it's happening again. It's like that moment, you know, in a horror movie where they think that the monster is dead and then the music on the soundtrack sort of tells you that the monster's not dead yet. Very violin music starts. No, it's like, because you know the cue in a movie is when, when when the mood is supposed to change, the music is supposed to change. To a so minor. they're like, we did it. We beat them. It's great. And there's no music. Well, by the way, what that or really... There's a, or there's like a little violin string in the background. Well, that's, that's what they're hearing. Well, what that really applies to is Trump's having contracted the, the virus himself, right? That was... The, that was, you know, I mean, I don't want to be, it's a delicate thing. The monster's dead. Um, and then he, to, oh, for him yeah, to have he, sort of shrug, shrugged it, it yeah. off in a weekend yeah. and, you know, sort of, you know, come out making videos and going on, going yeah. on, you know, appearance. No, that's, tours that, and, that is yeah. a very, that's, that's really, that's really funny. Actually, <laughs> that's right. Can nothing, <laughs> Can nothing, can nothing stop him? Right. Yeah. So, uh, because again, like all of the, all of the requisite information that we have is Biden is sort of like doing a third to, uh, you know, I, I don't know, like 33 to 50% better than Hillary was at this point, right? Hillary at her strongest point, uh, was up seven in the polls. Biden, was up 10 and a half at is still over 10 in the 538 average. Uh, so that's like 30% better. And, um, and he is leading in every battleground state and they're polling in these battleground states more than they were in 2016, where people didn't really know that Michigan was in play because nobody was polling there. Um, anyway, so, uh, they are, they are looking at that data and then they are looking at their own mood and the mood is swamping the data. That, that's all I'm saying. Now the question is, should it? Uh, Noah, what do you, should it? Or sh- I mean, shouldn't you be like feeling more confident if you were they, or should you not? <clears throat> well, I mean, nobody wants to evince confidence, right? Cause that just, that's just tempting fate. Uh, and there's an element of superstition to all of this, so it's not like saying that is is unscientific. This is all, frankly, an unscientific conversation to begin with. So yes, the, they nobody wants to be publicly confident, but no, there's no evidence that the data uh, is is really against them. I mean, you can be skeptical that this is going to be a, an eight nine point race. I don't think it's going to be an eight nine point race at the end of the day. But even if you shave a fair bit off the top and these swing state races and even the national polling, I mean, it's still a pretty comfortable lead for, for Joe Biden. So yeah, no, there, there's no evidence to justify, first of all, the panic that we're seeing in the press, certainly. And second of all, the fact that we have a news cycle around what these, you know, 27 year old content managers in Silicon Valley will allow you to read. That's just insane. It's an insane thing to even think up to and including, as I said last week, the, censorship, the bottlerization of a House Republican Judiciary Committee post. That's that's just insane. These people do not have the kind of legitimacy to do that. That exceeds the bounds of what your uh, what prudence and respectability should allow you to do. I mean, maybe these are written or unwritten rules. I don't know. But you should have a pang of conscience when you're compelled to to censor information provided to you by legitimately legitimately elected congressional officials when you have none of that legitimacy. Can we go back to the New York Post story a little bit? Because I I am struck in teasing out the attacks on it by a, a fascinating inconsistency in the attacks. The attacks are this is a dirty trick. This is an underhanded dirty trick, a disinfo it's disinformation. Disinformation refers to something very specific that is not a dirty trick. Disinformation is invented realities, uh, fake news, literally fake news, right? Disinformation are stories, classically Soviet disinformation were invented stories like crack was, you know, a CIA invention or something like that. Like 
stories that were invented literally in the KGB and then retailed out through friendly press arms and stuff like that. So the claim is that the New York Post story is disinformation, meaning, but does it mean that what they are saying is that the emails that we saw and the texts that we saw were created in Moscow and then, you know, made into PDFs and it said that they were the files from Hunter's computer, but they were made up? Because that's one thing. That's disinformation. Or are they from Hunter's computer? but we shouldn't be reading them, which is a dirty trick. And that, and that the story that Rudy Giuliani told is frankly not believable, which I think we really have to offer some credence to that. There's something fishy about this guy in Wilmington, Delaware, that Hunter Biden brings in three of his laptops and then forgets them there. Like who forgets if he brought them in to fix them, why would he forget them? Why, if he was living in L.A., did he bring his laptops into a into a computer store in Wilmington? And we now have some uh, Ukrainian-Russian oligarchy, I don't even know who this guy is, who now says he has another 30,000 Hunter emails. Well, how does he have them? What does he have to do with the Wilmington computer shop? Doesn't that suggest that somebody may have stolen these machines? How is Steve Bannon involved and like didn't i last hear that steve bannon had been you know was like under arrest and you know out on bail like i understand that we have to like you know it's fine that you know we have a presumption of innocence but something fishy is going on with these laptops and that's a perfectly fair thing to talk about but you can't call it disinformation Unless you're willing to say that it's not true, because disinformation is untrue, is fake information for a political purpose. The Steele dossier was disinformation. Right. Right. Although Steele, here's the the complicated part. Steele Steele didn't know that he was, the disinformation was go out and find out crap about Trump and then he found out crap about Trump and assumed it was all true or, or he even said some of the, it's as unconfirmed mm-hmm. or something like that. But you know, some of it was made up obviously, or a lot of it was made up anyway. I'm seeing this total elision between this notion that there is something underhanded and scummy about retailing information from these computers that whose provenance is very, very unclear. And uh, and this notion that what we're, we shouldn't read it because it's not real. Because as everyone on the right who was following the story says, they're not denying that any of it is true, which is striking. Now, you could say they're not doing it because they don't want to give any oxygen to the story whatsoever, so they're not going to respond to it at all. But you can pretty flatly say something is fake if it's fake. Well, and Joe Biden did respond over the weekend. There was one interaction, which I think speaks to this broader question about panic that we've been talking about, where a, I think I believe it was a CBS News reporter asked him, um, you know, do you have any response to the Hunter Biden story? And he went off on that reporter in a way that when Donald Trump has in the past gone off on reporters in very personal and, and angry terms has been denounced by other journalists. Uh, in this case, Joe Biden was not really denounced by anyone, save maybe one other CBS reporter. So you do have Joe Biden very defensive. He called it a smear campaign. He absolutely refused to engage, including it with any denial. Um, and the press, once again, left it at that. The next day, he was at an ice cream shop and they were asking what flavor he'd chosen. So you see, I, and we're gonna, I know we want to talk about conspiracy theories later, but you can see why some people look at these scenarios and go, what's going on here? There's got to be a bigger story I don't know about. There's got to be, and this is how conspiracies start to develop, right? I mean, it happened. It doesn't matter what your partisan leanings are. When you have this effort to suppress by a certain, uh, in this case, journalist, to sit on a story, to not really get at the story, to not push some of the major figures in the story, people start to ask more questions and they should. I mean, I, I think it's kind of uh, appalling how, how much 
uh, mainstream journalism is aiding abetting, aiding and abetting the Biden campaign right now with regard to the story, regardless whether or not we end up deciding, as you said, John, that this this is legitimate or not. It's a story. They should be covering it. But that's part of the panic. Right. Because here's how the panic would work. It is the implicit belief of almost everybody uh, in fashionable circles in America that Donald Trump must be defeated if America is to survive. And therefore, under such circumstances, I think I quoted this last week. It's like this line in the Blues Brothers where the guy says, uh, excessive force against the Blues Brothers has been approved. If your goal, if the general uh, presumption is that we, you know, we're it's 1932 and we're all living in Berlin, then uh, you want to be able to set, tell your grandchildren that you participated in some fashion or other in 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 making sure that Hitler didn't didn't rise, and that's where a lot of people's mindsets are, and so. You're looking at it and saying they're aiding and abetting the Biden campaign, and they're looking at it and saying they are saving America. Now they're not saying here's the problem: if you were, if you actually did participate in this alternate history in which you were an active participant in this effort to prevent the rise of Hitler, your grandparents, your grandchildren wouldn't ask about that because they'd never know anything about that. This is all in your own in your own head, right? But that's all part of the drama. We've all been raised. We've spent our entire lives with the what my thing was, what would you do if you were on the Poseidon adventure? That was my 11 year old thing. Would you be the person who screamed and panicked and like tried to climb over the other person and tried to get to, you know, like scrambled around? Because if you were that person, you lost your head and you panicked, you would have drowned. Or would you have been one of the resourceful, calm, focused people who slowly started climbing up the ship as it was upside down and got yourself out of the ship. That was the challenge. Like, were you a resourceful person or a hysterical person, right? And this is the Nazi version, which is, what what would you have done if you were in 1932 Berlin? What would you have done? Would you have been, or would you have just been one of the get-along-to-go-along people? And I have had friends, or ex-friends, really, who had, you know, in, in the heat of some discussion where I said, no, I don't think Mitch McConnell is the most evil person on earth, say to me, these are dangerous times. This is 1930 in Berlin. You are going to have to choose a side. And I'm like, oh, really? You're you're telling me I have to choose a side? Like, I'm, you know, a Jew in America and tw- you're, you're accusing me of being a Nazi? Like, go screw yourself. Like, the, you know, that's my one friendship that really hasn't survived these years was was that analogy and i hear that thing going on when i see this no 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 i mean we can't even report on what's going on with hunter biden not that by the way i think that hunter biden is a big story i actually don't think hunter biden is a big story and i don't think that it's that easy to connect joe to it and he's 49 years old and joe is 77 years old and you know He's running against a guy who has his son-in-law as his main advisor and his daughter as a senior White House advisor on the federal payroll. So that he's walking around saying, you know, oh, this is terrible. The Bidens are a criminal enterprise. Well, look in the mirror, buddy. I'm sorry. You can't have it both ways. And the right can't have it both ways either. They can't defend Trump's conduct toward his own family and his private business, and then turn around and be all shocked and horrified that Biden plays in the swamp or that the Biden family played in the swamp. I mean, I don't like it, whatever, you know, but sorry, you don't get it both ways. You know, if if it were John McCain, that would be a different story. Like John McCain, you know, or, you know, if some other Republican were running against Joe Biden, whose son was, you know, and brother were enriching themselves then maybe it could be an issue. But Trump can't make that an issue, and Trump's partisans in the press can't make it an issue. I mean, they can. You know, if it sticks, it sticks. Like, you throw stuff against the wall when you're losing to see what sticks. But this is, again, back to the panic. There's no evidence that it's sticking. There's no evidence that the story is even relevant. The story is about the story. It's not about which is, the content. Right, which is, why, which is why they should have let it run. Right. 
instead of trying to suppress it. Like that's where, right. That's the panic. Now, before I panic over my dental hygiene, I would like, which I should don't need to panic about because I use Quip and that's what I'm about to talk to Quip, the Quip electro electric toothbrush. Okay. Look, When's the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? With Quip's new smart electric toothbrush, good habits can earn you great perks, like free products, gift cards, and more. Uh, You know, I love the Quip toothbrush. Noah uses it. I use it. And you've heard us talk about it a million times. But what I'm talking about today is something brand new that rewards you and your mouth. The Quip smart brush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth it tracks when and how well you brush, get tips and coaching to improve your habits. It's like a Fitbit for your mouth. Earn points for daily brushing and bonus points completing for challenges like streaks. Redeem for rewards like free products, gift cards, and discounts from Quip and partners. If you already have a Quip, upgrade it with a smart motor and keep the features you know and love. Sensitive sonic vibrations, two-minute timer, 30-second pulses for a guided clean, slim, lightweight, and sleek, no wires or bulky charger, multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount, and that complete routine that you can have. Floss that expands to clean and comes in a refillable dispenser to reduce waste. The refresh bag to bring your good oral care habits everywhere you go. Plus, you get brush head, toothpaste, and floss refills delivered from $5 and shipping is free. Join over 5 million mouths who use Quip and save hundreds compared to other Bluetooth brushes when you get a Quip smart brush for just $45. Start getting those rewards for brushing your teeth today and go to getquip.com slash commentary right now to get your first refill Free! That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash commentary. It's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary. Quip, better oral health, made simple and rewarding. And as always, we thank Quip for sponsoring the commentary podcast. So uh, Trump refused to disavow QAnon, the giant conspiracy theory centering on somebody who seems to have stolen his name from Ian Fleming's James Bond novels uh, that goes from uh, breaking up a pedophilia ring to the idea that we're somehow being alien lizard aliens are uh, taking the place of people or JFK Jr. is going to resurface and and uh, tr- Trump is going to fire Pence and make JFK Jr. the vice presidential, whatever. I don't even know what the hell they're talking about. Uh so he won't disavow it because he says they're against pedophilia, and so is he. Meanwhile, in spite of everything that we've been through over the last three years, and uh, people are still saying that the Steele dossier is true when we know it is false, from right to left, the conspiracy theory is, you know, gone so mainstream that you can't even, you know, begin to quantify it. Or is that the case? So, Christine, you are an American history scholar. So you know that from the beginning of American history, particularly in New York State, though it's largely focused on religious movements, that uh, there has been a taste in American society for uh, extremist or uh, unusual or uh, anti-consensual, not anti, but like anti-the social consensus movements uh, outside the mainstream that get, gar- garners surprising strength from from the uh, rise of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophists to the Shakers to, again, New York State was very big in all of this. And then moving on. So my question is, are people crazier? And I'm not saying that being a Mormon is crazy. So just let me just stipulate that. But are people crazier now than they always have been and are are more inclined to believe crazy things or is it just all now everything is public everything is on the surface nothing has more weight and that and that there is a kind of premium today in surfacing your rivals or your opponents uh uh, uh, uh for for political power um and so we think that people are crazier than they used to be and more inclined to believe not so things than they used to be. 
I, I don't think people are crazier per se, but I do think we have more people experiencing some of the things that, that actually fuel the embrace of conspiracy theories, and that's alienation and powerlessness, a sense of powerlessness. What a conspiracy theory gives anyone who embraces it is some sense of control, right? Suddenly you can see, you can connect the dots, you can understand what's going on. I've been struck, quite frankly, by the emphasis in recent years in both the QAnon theories and in, and some of the other conspiracy theories floating around um, about the focus on pedophilia, which which you mentioned, and which Trump himself addressed. At a time when our when when porn is readily available everywhere, our culture is highly sexualized. It's interesting to me that a lot of people are panicking about pedophilia. And of course, if you if you once you sort of start down the path towards conspiracy theory. Um, you can start to see evidence in the real world of depravity. So, you know, you have the the, the Epstein uh, story, actually, for conspiracy theorists who are worried that there are these child sex trafficking rings, which, of course, there are in real life. Um, found, they can find the evidence. What they also can do is find each other immediately online. And that is something the scale of these has grown seemingly more vast, even though I don't think the psychology of them has changed that much, because you can find like-minded people immediately. You can start organizing things you can. In the case of the Pizzagate uh, QAnon-ish um, activity, find people who are willing to, to pick up a gun and start shooting because they think they are protecting children. And again, that this is a time when I think a lot of Americans are, the, the, the amount of uncertainty is vast. Um, add a pandemic on top of that, the fear of illness, the fear of death, but the idea that we're protecting children is is so striking to me with a lot it's a through line of for a lot of these conspiracy theories and i'm i think that speaks actually to a broader cultural anxiety about people's sense of powerlessness at a time when there's not a lot of faith in institutions because on the left the conspiracy theories are also about a big lie right that the people at in power are telling you lies and you have to find out the truth um so I, I don't think it's all that different psychologically, but it absolutely is different in scale. Yeah. So I wrote a little bit about this in my book <clears throat> and um, that would be unjust, unjust available at Amazon social justice and the unmaking of America available at Amazon and other fine retailers. Um, but mostly uh, Amazon. <laughs> sure. Uh, whatever works. I don't care. Just go buy it. Um, so there is, it, uh, Christine's right, there's there's nothing new psychologically here. But there is a new element to it, uh, and that is the market for it. So um, obviously the the right has their conspiracy theories, the QAnon stuff. I mean, it began really in the beginning of the Trump presidency with this notion that the president's election was tainted by illegal aliens voting in vast numbers in these states where the president didn't win the popular vote. Uh, in 2017, YouGov pulled this and found 52% of Republicans agreed with that notion, essentially calling the, the election they won illegitimate. Now, the left has their own um, conspiracy theories. You mentioned the Russia probe and the, the notion that the president is beholden to Moscow as its theory be, in, in the absence of evidence. But a bigger one, one that probably on the left that uh, evinces all the 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 traits of a conspiracy theory is racism and the notion that racism pervades every aspect of society. It is, it is a, an essential conspiracy theory. This is something that is omnipresent, but unseen it's all consuming, but subtle enough so that it's un invisible to the untrained eye and the actions that you need to take to mitigate it are vaguely spiritual in nature. Um, so it has all those elements. Why it's so attractive now is the newness of it because all conspiracies as, as, um, Christine said, uh, have the advantage of exculpating you from your own circumstances, right? You are not responsible for your lot in life. A series of uh, really, you know, uh, vested interests and powerful interests that most people are even unaware of have done this to you. Um, the market for that is new. There didn't used to be a lot of as much currency in a victimization narrative as there is now. And usually, I mean, I, it's it's they're repulsive on the left, but it's forgivable insofar as this is something that's usually native to the out party. The responsibilities of governing compel you to abandon this sort of um, self pitying narratives because they're just unproductive. I they just don't, I don't. This is my question: is you're you're saying that there's a new market for it, and I'm thinking back in sort of like relatively recent American history to sort of America, certain kinds of sociological or business sociological ideas that are basically conspiracy theories without, uh, without the name, like, 
uh, planned obsolescence. Do you know about the theory of planned obsolescence from the 1950s? Right. It was this notion that products were being made in the United States designed to fail in short order. So you would have to buy new versions of those products. Now, this is at a very, the, 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 the heart of planned obsolescence in the 1950s, according to C. Wright Mills and people who, who peddled this theory was Detroit and the cars of Detroit, right? Here's the comedy of them. If cars made in the 1950s did not rust due to snow, they're still driving. Mm -hmm. This was some great planned obsolescence that they pulled off. They built these things. They are like, they are, they are eternal. They are eternal verities. Like there are, there are millions of, of 50 year old cars in the United States. So, but that theory was capitalists got together to decide that they were going to make their products obsolete over time to make you keep buying them. Yeah, I mean, was, but, yeah. But, the, but it doesn't. I don't think that holds up necessarily because the the to make that work, it would be like Black and Decker saying, "Well, you know, we made a dustbuster that doesn't work for more than three years because of Hoover. Blame Hoover for the dustbuster not working." This no, but the, the conspiracy but, is but a Trump, capitalist conspiracy, not within. That's what. But the president not is not doing conspiracy. that. This is what I'm trying to say: is the president is advertising an alternative theory of governance, which is anti-governance, which is we cannot govern. And I don't have a, I don't have a, a, a much to run on here. His, his people around him are making the case for his for his administration. He's not. He's saying I can't do this. I can't. I haven't been effective because of these guys. So my record of lack of accomplishments is actually something that I, I can say is is a benefit to to my to my reelection efforts because you've been thwarted. You've all, all your ambitions were were halted by these people, and you should take out your vengeance on them by voting for me, even in the absence of a, of a record. Abe, as a as a as a amateur scholar of <laughs> the American cinema, how much of this? You know, is is redolent of these two periods, I think, in the 70s and the 90s, and say, American movies, like the paranoid movies of the 70s, the Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor, the, uh, you know, all of these things that posited this, uh, you know, sort of the, these these uh, conspiracies. And then in the 90s, with the, with the rise of of the internet and computers, you had movies like The Net or La Femme Nikita. You had movies and shows that posited that through the power of the internet, vast, you know, there would be vast control of, you know, of people. And then this is where I'm talking about how it's not just something on the right. The entire theory of the 2016 election on the left was that Facebook in cahoots with Cambridge Analytica fed propaganda into the minds of innocent people and brainwashed them into voting for Trump. And therefore Trump, Cambridge Analytica, Steve Bannon, Robert Mercer, Mark Zuckerberg, and the lizard alien that controls all of them made everyone vote for Trump. I'll go back further though. If you want to think about the sort of left-wing conspiracy theories, um, what about 9-11 trutherism? I mean, um, that was enormous. And that was, I think in that you see in Chrysalis sort of the problem here, which is that 9-11 happened right when there was this explosion in online media that was available to everyone. So there was that one, that first movie, uh, Loose Change, that became a, a kind of phenomenon in itself, um, which was a conspiracy theory I hesitate to use the word documentary um, about about how 9-11 was was an inside job. And that that, that got a huge viewership, gained, gained huge support. Um, and that was the kind of thing a, 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 a movie, let's say, of that quality would not have made it to any theater ever before the Internet. Um, but in 2001... Uh, it can get millions and millions of views. And, you know, it's like they say a little information is a dangerous thing. Everyone right. has access well, to a little information. Right. Well, let's go back five years before 9-11 to the, uh, to the explosion of TWA Flight 800, yep. uh, you know, over Center Mariches in uh, off Long Island, which was really the dawn of the Internet age in terms of you know how people were using the internet 
and this theory that it was shot down by a missile and the people took pictures and there was the missile and that there was a, so if it happened and there was a missile, the only way that this could have happened was that there was a giant cover up. And why would we cover it up? Well, we covered it up because we did it. So that's why we somehow managed to cover it up. And, and so, yeah, so the transmission of these ideas, which are patently ridiculous, uh, become, and, you know, the people like Pierre Salinger, who had, was JFK's press secretary and was a longtime ABC News correspondent, Pierre Salinger believed in the Flight 800 conspiracy theory. Like, this wasn't just, you know, a bunch of, you know, lunatic losers living in their mother's basements. Like, this was a real thing. So, but what I, again, I'm, I, wouldn't people in 1911 been as subject to the notion that these yes. things were going on yes, as now? But, but the difference is the reason it th- there's a weird trickle up theory you can make now because of the internet and what it does. Because yeah. in 1911, you could have had a group of people have their crazy theory and they would meet once a week and discuss it. And the, you know, the people who ran that state or that country would never hear about it. The reason you have Pierre Salinger then and Donald Trump now repeating the conspiracy is that what has given it legitimacy is the sheer volume of people who are trafficking in it. And they don't even necessarily believe it. I've been struck by the surveys that have been done of Democrats versus Republicans about what they know about QAnon. More Democrats know about QAnon than Republicans, like when you look at the survey data. But that's because the left-leaning press has been covering it relentlessly. They have not been covering other conspiracy theories that thrive on the left. So that that makes sense. But I do think that the reason we're going to see more of this, not less, in the future from political leaders, because the sheer number of people who seem to be engaged in these theories, and again, I question whether you can count someone who reads a QAnon post as a QAnon adopter, Nevertheless, it's it's more it's it's in the water that politicians swim in now and they have to and they have to address it or they feel they have to address it. You know, there's also we're talking about sort of extreme conspiracy theories here, but there's a way in which almost soft conspiracy theories or um, I don't know, mild conspiracy theories have really become um, sort of accepted ideologies that we don't necessarily think of as conspiracy theories. And I'm thinking here of anti-capitalism really functions now as a conspiracy theory. I mean, this whole, when everyone was chanting about the 1%, they were saying there is this tiny, there's this tiny fraction, this 1% of the population that, that manipulates the system and um, is sucking the rest of us dry uh, and taking our money and we are enthralled to it and they are the ones in control this is a this is a this is absolutely a conspiratorial take. That's, on that's what I was thinking. Right. Christine was talking is that Marxism is a conspiracy theory. Well, Marxism the is the end. ultimate ultimate right. conspiracy theory. But you know, I'm November criminals even... is a conspiracy theory. I <laughs> right. mean, all the, the it's the the issue is political salience and right. also an absolution narrative. Right now, we're of course forgetting the ultimate conspiracy theory of our time, which is the JFK assassination. Uh, and the whole notion that Lee Harvey Oswald didn't act alone. And I'll give you an interesting through line on that conspiracy. So the first book written by the egregious Sidney Blumenthal, uh, as Charles Krauthammer informed me once, was a <clears throat> the CIA and big business killed JFK, which of course then became the, uh, the lingua franca of Oliver Stone's JFK movie and various other things, right? So... Uh, Sidney Blumenthal begins his professional life as a JFK conspiracy theorist. And then 25 years later designs the chart, the org chart of the vast right-wing conspiracy that Hillary Clinton said, you know, had been created to take her and her husband down. And that was his great work was this, you know, Carrie Matheson, there's there, it's always sunny in Philadelphia chart with the strings connecting everything on the giant wall of conspiracy, um, which was basically that, you know, the Bradley Foundation and various other people gave money to conservative magazines. And so therefore, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton had to, you know, get oral sex from Monica Lewinsky in the Oval Office. 
apparently that was that was basically and and Hillary and Bill had to take sweetheart loans and 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 then write them down off off white water because they they couldn't help it because of the vast right wing conspiracy. So the JFK theory, and again, a lot of this is you can sort of understand the the inexplicable nature of the Kennedy assassination. Guy shoots him from a window. He's then arrested. He's like walking down a corridor and then some weird gangster from the town shoots him and kills him before he can be arraigned. I mean, you know, you can understand that this totally inexplicable set of events and needing to apply logic to it. That's what conspiracy is, is logic to explain that tragic, inexplicable, horrifying, awful things are in fact happen for a reason. And that's why they're all a substitute religion. I mean, conspiracy theories are in essence a substitute religion because they make, they provide a description of the world that is meaningful and comprehensible to people who believe that the world is inexplicable and incomprehensible. Uh we must not leave out of this um, anti-Semitism and the rise in anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism is, among other things, a conspiracy theory. It is well, it's the it is the oldest conspiracy. Yes, theory, it is a right? theory about how the world works, um, and and according to right. it, it is it is there's this cabal of, of Jews who uh, secretly uh, have their tentacles wrapped around the world and control everything um, uh, in. You know, this hidden system that uh, you have no access to, and and you're getting screwed by. Well, I one one thing about I, I do think the heightened concern right now about the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories, whether it's QAnon or anti-vaxxers, whatever it is, I do think that heightened concern is is a is a good thing. We should be more aware of this, and that's because, like like a like a free free society with healthy institutions obsession with bribery which like in a country like the US actually doesn't happen that much if you compare it to the way other countries work it's actually a reflection of the strength of our institutions when we're obsessed with one small thing what concerns me now about certainly in particular the deep state conspiracy theorizing that aspect of it suggests um a real uh mistrust of the institution rather than an understanding that we have to make sure we protect this institution from, you know, kind of nefarious activity. Uh, in, in fact, now it's like it signals a breakdown of trust in those institutions, right? Because it used to be the old CIA conspiracy theory about crack in African-American neighborhoods was one thing. Now it's anyone who works in the FBI is a deep state or, or, or and we even see on the left, these occasional calls by op- opinion writers to, that that's a positive thing, right? There was a recent opinion piece in the New York Times saying, if you're a decent public uh, servant, you should be ratting out anything that Trump is doing. Like this idea that that's actually makes you a better American. So I think the heightened awareness of it is a useful tool if we can see it as a reflection of some of the, the problems we have with faith in our institutions, because that is down the line going to lead to some other ill effects, not just conspiracy theories. Well put. And we will reconvene uh, tomorrow to offer some more cheery reflections on our current predicament. For Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.